The Life of Christ. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 4. Father, once again, we thank you. You said that the entrance of your word brings light. It will bring understanding to the simple. Lord, you said as we continue to look into this word of yours, you said in Corinthians that if we continue to behold in the word of God as in a mirror the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, Father, we're trusting that you're working some things out in our spirit as we listen and hearken unto your word. So we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. The first five Beatitudes, I'll just read them off real quickly, are number one, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Number four, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Again, even before I go further, somehow, when you read these again on your own, and read them like from an amplified or whatever, try to, try to put yourself in this hill. Sit down with him. Picture, if you've ever, again, I've only been to Israel once, but I've sat on this mount. If any of you have been there, I'm sure you have too. But picture them looking down into the Galilee, but the 12 sitting there and all the multitudes walking up this concave part of this hill. And he's just sitting and he's looking and he's just like, you know, 12, similar to this. And he's reversing their whole world dynamic. Their whole world view is being turned upside down because he's telling them what it really takes to be blessed. Now, the sixth beatitude was this. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Now, I mean, that's got to be one of the most incredible ones. There's two ways to understand this beatitude. Point A speaks to the absence of any sensual defilement. In other words, how you see things, what, how, how you look at things. And number two, it, it means to have the same horror towards pride and self-will self -will and lack of love that we would over, the, over any of the depravity that we witness in the world. In other words, like I have just like where I come tonight here and I have to park down here in Soho Square. It's the only place I can get a place to park. And I walk past all, you know, there's sex shops and all this stuff. It's real interesting when you're in Bible school, you're, you know, especially tonight when I walk back every time at nighttime, it's worse. But I can look at some of these, all the homosexuals that gather up there and these, you know, it's very difficult still for me to be a kind, sweet guy when I watch, you know, 55 year old men that are forgiving me, but hugging and kissing very passionately. And, um, and I, I look at that and my soul just, just recoils, you know, much less. The very first time I heard the cry of the lost was in San Francisco. And I don't, I don't want to go to all that right now. But when I was working for David Wilkerson's teams, and uh, we'll get to some of that actually up here in a little bit when we get to the parable of the lost coin. But uh, that depravity, the things that you do see, you can't just hide in a monastery your whole life, you know what I mean? But all, but I don't want to go there yet. 
the things that rock your soul, what Jesus means here when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, he's wanting us to recoil just as strongly. I don't know what may set you off. I don't know if it's like just seeing some yabo, you know, taking advantage of a bullying somebody, or like I said, a couple of people that are doing some things, homosexuals, like I said, that just make you sick to your stomach or whatever. There's got to be something in us that he, at least he would like for us to have something at work in our spirit that causes us to have that same sense of, God, you know, when you recognize pride still in yourself or when you see all this self-will come up in yourself or this lack of restraint, he wants us to have a purity in our hearts. He, you know, eyes to me are very important. Have you, what's one of the first things you ever hear people say when they look at a brand new baby? A baby that's, I mean, you know, a couple of months old. What do they say about them? Oh, they're so beautiful. But I mean, they, you hear the word what? Innocent a lot. They're just so innocent. But have you ever noticed, like my grandson, you know, just a year old, uh, uh, Jaden, or Kelsey's five and a half years old now. She rules the world still. She's a princess of all the earth. But you know, when you look at a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, do, do any of you have occasion to look at a young one much nowadays? But their eyes, remember how absolutely pure their eyes are? You know what I mean? I mean, just the, just the glow, just the incredible brightness and lack of anything there. I mean, it's this innocence. It's this depth of purity. And it is true, the old world is saying about the eyes of the window of the soul. It's, you can look at a person and you can look into their eyes, and I'm, everybody's going to get nervous now. <laughs> no, but you, if you can see in people's eyes where there's still innocence. One of, the, one of the first things that you can tell, all I know is this, is when I see young boys and young girls sometimes, you can see, you can tell instantly that innocence has been stolen. Like some young girl that's been abused or some young boy or something like that. Or you see him on the streets, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old. You can just look at them. And you don't have to have the gift of discerning the spirits in operation. You can just see the innocence is gone. It's just gone. And see, all of us weren't very innocent before we got to Christ. But this is, the glory of this is that coming to Jesus Christ will restore your innocence. Now, I'm going to say something that may shock some of you. I hope you don't get mad at me using this phrase. But again... Well, I worked with Ed Cole for a long time, you know, a prophet to men. And we, and we would go to these big Bible colleges. And Ed used to teach this message on the sacredness of sex. And he'd talk about covenant. He'd talk about how, how, how sex was the token of the covenant, you know, which it is. It's the very first, to very first covenant that you can ever trace back to man as far as Adam and Eve. And the idea that I don't want to go to the whole thing here because I don't want to get you all shocked and freak out. But it's true. Ideally, if you'll remember... Ideally, when a woman, before the first time a husband comes together with his wife, before there were feminine appliances and what have you, I'm going to, again, this is something we'll teach in Blood Covenant in September. Well, I mean, one of, the, one of the illustrations we'll give, but if you'll remember, this is how holy sex is. That when a man and a woman first come together in that act of, of intimacy, ideally, a woman who's a virgin, what happens, remember, is that her hymen is broken and blood flows. To think about this, blood flows over the man and the woman at the same time. It's a blood covenant. Do you hear me? It's a blood covenant. It's the holiest thing there is in the Bible, blood covenant. And it can be argued clearly that it's the very first covenant ever in the Bible because of Adam and Eve. The very first covenant is a covenant of blood. So Dr. Cole would teach on the sacredness of sex and what it meant to have lost your innocency and lost your virginity and what have you. And even in Bible college, this Bible college had over 5,000 students in it. 
And he, I never will forget the first time he did this, he gave an altar call for those who would like to have the spirit of virginity restored in, back into their life. You'd have to have heard Ed Cole preach. He was a prophet to man, but he, he taught on how you may not be able to recover your physical virginity, but if you will make a stand this day, this day, to set yourself apart unto God until that time that God brings you that mate that you're ordained to live with and have, be married to, you can, he said, receive back into your life the spirit of virginity. And I mean, this is a Bible college, and I watched over 2,000, I watched half of the Bible college, over 2,500 young men and women come forward, weeping their heads off, just crying bitterly that had lost their innocence and what have you due to, for whatever reason, just because of the stupid spirit that's in this world. But I mean, I said all that to say, you see, in, you can see where there's a loss of innocence. You can see where there's a lack of purity. You don't have to be some great, great, you know, like I said, gifted person with discerning the spirits. You can just look into people's faces and eyes and you can see where often it's not their fault, but they've been ripped off. The innocency is lost. But the good news is, and somebody say, praise God, there's always good news. I'm serious. That's, that's some, you know, I feel like now I'm going to start teaching on that message right now, but I better not. <laughs> But the point is, it's, it's so awesome to know that our God is so redemptive. Everything about, his, his, everything about, his, about Him is redemptive in nature that you can, you can bring yourself to God afresh and to a, a fresh place of consecration and become pure, regain innocence. And I, I've worked with too many people, like, I mean, you know, like from my own background, and you begin to see people who, I worked with Jackie Schultz. Jackie Schultz, when I was Teen Challenge, New York, Jackie Schultz, was a prostitute from the age of 12. Beautiful girl. I knew her when she was 26, 27. And Jackie was the one of the most dirt bad drug addicts that New York had. Gang leader led a, a gang of a, a women's gang. She was a killer. She was tough. This girl was tough. And uh, there's books written about Jackie Schultz and I worked with her. And anyhow, uh, but Jackie, I mean, the thing that broke her is her 15-year-old brother came and wanted to get loaded, and he gave, she gave her 15-year-old brother a fix of heroin. He died, and she had to carry him downstairs at night, and she buried him in an empty lot in a tenement between two old, like, welfare housing tenements in New York, and it just broke her. It just broke her in a million pieces. But Jackie got gloriously saved through the Ministry of Teen Challenge, and I always remember David Wilkerson and introducing her one day, and he said, here's Jackie Soltz, and he said, here's proof God can take a prostitute and turn her into a virgin. <laughs> That's the way he announced her. But Jackie, uh, I worked with Jackie for probably two years, and this girl, I mean, the glow in her eyes, the glory of God that was on this girl, I mean, it, she looked like this. She looked, she had the eyes of my granddaughter after having a 20-year life of drug addiction and prostitution. It's absolute hell. And I'm just saying that thrills me because I've seen it. I've watched what God does in people's lives. He can restore our innocence and restore our purity if we'll but just begin to follow Him and yield ourselves to Him and get real about this stuff. The kingdom of God must be a place of contrast to the world's wickedness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Psalm 51.10, of course, is when David, that's the great Psalm when David, remember, committed murder and adultery. He committed murder, he committed adultery, then he committed murder. And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or the King James says, renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4 is a very powerful uh, scripture too. It's very similar to, to Psalm 15. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Now, Psalm 15 says something very similar. It says, who shall abide in my holy hill? He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. In other words, somebody that walks in integrity, somebody that has a purity of heart. You know, to me, honor is still a big word. Everybody say honor. honor. You know, one of my old spiritual fathers used to say this. He said, if you're going to serve God, he said, there's one way that one, he said, just you need to look at some things very simply. And he said, one of the things you need to do is understand this. All you have to learn to do is reverence the right and reject the wrong. And he said, God will cause you to walk in honor. And someplace, just see, that's what's been stolen from the world today. I mean, all these idiots out here and the stuff that goes crazy and these terrorists and what have you. But there's no honor in what those people did last week. I mean, there's, you know, there's no honor in whoever the coward was that instigated those young men to do that. I mean, you know, he's the sissy. <laughs> you know, you get somebody else to kill themselves and he's some punk. Sorry, but my flesh is getting involved now. <laughs> he's some guy that I'd like to lay hands on suddenly. The Bible says lay hands suddenly, you see I'm, there's, there's honor and nobility are still incredible words, and I, I, would, I want them to be big words in your vocabulary. Some things we do, not because we feel like doing them, but because they're the honorable thing to do. We do not need to lose the word honor, much less the word nobility. God's looking for us to be men and women that have some honor about us, that walk in some nobility. And I don't mean, you know, having aristocracy, I said nobility, where we, we live for noble purposes. And we understand that it's a good thing to walk upright before God. There are some things we don't touch. And let me, you'll see that what I mean in these next few verses. Uh, again, point C, it says, our, our eye needs to be singled towards God. Psalm 97.10 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. <clears throat> and this actually does mean hate. It means a shoe with a violence. It says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he who guards the lives of his faithful ones, for he, sorry, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 8.13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And he said, I hate pride. I mean, this is what God says about this. He said, I hate pride and arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. He says he hates it. Amos 5.15 says, hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Romans 12, 9 says, Let your love be sincere, a real thing. Hate what is evil. Loathe all ungodliness and turn in horror from wickedness, but hold fast to that which is good. And I wrote this, you know, when I wrote this curriculum, it was like 10 years ago, but it's still the truth. There's really, now listen to this. There's no place for guile or deceit or selfish soul or contentious spirit in us. So we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. And this is if we're going to understand what blessedness comes from. Do we tolerate the loose joke? I know none of you ladies do because you ladies are all upright handmaidens of the Lord. So we're just talking to the wicked men here. <laughs> Seriously, how easy is it at work? You know, how when people come, I learned a long time ago, people come up, they still come up to me and want to tell me a joke. And when I can hear it, start getting off color. And I know you're going to think it's a joke, but I do. I start speaking in tongues to them. <laughs> I just go, and they normally don't wait around for the interpretation. <laughs> but I learned a long time ago, I'm not going to, or like people's gossip and stuff, I'm not going to let somebody use my ear for a rubbish tip. 
I got too much I've got to do. I've got purpose in my life. I can't afford it. I don't want that seat. I don't want to hear about so-and-so. I don't want to hear about what this woman did or what this guy did. I mean, if it's minister to minister, we're counseling and dealing with something, that's different. But the loose joke, these kind of things, you see, there's some place you just have to draw a line in the sand. I'm a holy man, and you're to be a holy man. Now, don't, don't, don't mishear me. I remember one day when I was preaching, I think I said that when I was preaching somewhere, it freaked them all out. But I'm a holy man because holiness has been imputed to me. I didn't say my behavior is perfect. But I want to tell you something. I'm after perfect behavior. I haven't arrived yet, but I'm after it. But I'm a holy man. I handle myself correctly. At least I try to, and particularly whether it be the members of the opposite sex or what have you. I mean, there's just some places, men and women, you draw the line. And you just, that you know, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. You are to not tolerate the loose joke, uh, the story with the double meaning. You're not to live in some low carnal plane. Uh, I put down, what kind of books do you read? What entertainment do we, do we choose? And, and you have to think about that sometimes. And I'm not saying that you, you know, become a monk, but I'm saying there comes a time when you make a decision. All I know is this, that spiritual promotion, promotion in the realm of the spirit, really begins to happen when God sees you saying, mm, I'm not crossing this line anymore. And it's not legalism. It's just the honorable thing to do. You hear me? It's just the right thing to do. Is our nature so coarse and unpurified that we can listen to the suggestive, to the sensual, and not be indignant? The Bible says, Evil communications corrupt good manners. As a man thinketh, so is he. Every man that hath this hope and impurifieth himself, even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. Again, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And what I put down here is what a reward is there. I mean, what an incredible reward because you begin to see God. So there it is. This is why we have to teach so much, like I said, on, you know, when uh, that tape series I did on our reasonable service about from Romans about the spirit, so, uh, the flesh and what have you, where I, where I talked about how I, I, you know, I was so grateful when I discovered that my thoughts were not me. You know, I don't want to go back and speak to all that, but it's an incredible thing that you have to learn that your mind, you cannot keep bad thoughts from coming across your mind. But I guarantee you, you're going to have war in your mind all the time if you continue to look at these stupid, I mean, how do you, just like this, you, I mean, you can't walk down any street in London and not see stuff that's suggestive, can you? You can't. I mean, that's just the way it is, the way ladies dress today and what have you, and you know, men and women both, you know, know when they're crossed the line. And even in our churches, we need to get real about that. And I don't, I'm not, listen, I'm not an old fogey, okay? I'm not a prude either, but I'm not a dummy either. I feel like I said, I've had to work with too many young people, male and female. And, I've, and that's why the Bible says younger women need the older women to teach them. And it doesn't mean teach them how to be old fogies. There's just, women know, listen, let's don't go there. <laughs> women know. I'll smile at all you lovely ladies. You're all beautiful. Women know when they dress a certain way that they're dressing a certain way. <laughs> they do. And men know, and men have, you know, unfortunately today, men have the same opportunities to try to whatever. And I'm just saying that at some point you don't become, like I said, some old fogey and you're not supposed to look like a, you know, whatever. But I'm just saying all of these things are things you take into consideration if we're actually going to see God. Because he wants us, he wants to bless us. Everybody okay? Oh, well. Anyhow. Next page, blessed are the peacemakers. Hallelujah. For they shall be called the children of God. I always remember one of the first prophecies I ever had over my life in the States before I ever came to England is I was told that uh, 
God had anointed me, they said, with a ministry of joy. And I thought, well, that's cool. But then they said that, he'd, that God had called me as a peacemaker. And I thought, well, that's really great. And then I went away thinking about it. I went, oh, my God. Well, a peacemaker, where do you use a peacemaker? Where there's war. <laughs> I said, thanks a lot. I don't know if I want that anointing or not. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Christ is known, of course, he's called the Prince of Peace. The true spirit of Christ always seeks to unify the people of God. In fact, in 1 John, the Bible says that's one of the ways you'll learn to recognize the spirit of Antichrist. We heard a lot of teaching about the spirit of Antichrist over this three-day conference. The Bible says in 1 John, any spirit that seeks to divide or disunite the body of Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. That means, uh, let me throw something else at you. This is what I was taught years ago. Listen to this statement. You ready for this one? Every time you open your mouth and you speak, a spirit speaks. Either your spirit, God's spirit, or a demon spirit. Every time you open your mouth and speak, it is a spirit speaking because you're a spirit. And you'll either speak by your spirit, just yourself from your soul, or you'll speak from the spirit of God, or you can speak from a demon. Now, why I said that is because years ago when I was studying all that love walk thing out and I got into 1 John and read that verse where it says, hereby will you know that, you know, the spirit of Antichrist, any spirit that seeks to, to sever, to annul or disunite the body of Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. And he stopped me and said, remember when you spoke against that church the other day? That's what he said. This is some 24 years ago. And I said, yes. He said, well, was that my spirit? I said, no. He said, was that your spirit? And I said, no, not really. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> and I suddenly thought to myself, are you telling me that when I spoke against another group of people, that actually it was the spirit of Antichrist coming out of me? And there was this silence from heaven. And it shook me to my heels. And all, all I know, something got very, very graphic and very serious to me right then. And that's why you will, I don't know, I don't, you will, I don't know that you've ever heard me, but you will probably never, ever really hear me. I, I'll definitely not name names, but I will never speak against another group of people, no matter how ugly they are to us or to anybody else. Uh, if I make a mistake, I'm lightning fast to repent. But all I know is this. We're not. We're to be peacemakers. We can't allow ourselves to enter into all that silly strife. Because the true spirit of Christ seeks to unify the people of God. Point C, some people seem especially gifted in sowing dissension and misunderstanding. Normally, it's because of some pet doctrine which has infatuated them. In other words, the doctrine, you've heard me say this from day one, I'm not interested as much in you people getting a lot of teaching is, and I'm not as interested in you people having a lot of teaching as I am in you meeting Jesus. Like I used to say years ago, you know, I, I, if I, I can teach you some doctrine and somebody else can come along with a far greater teaching gift than I have and teach you some other doctrine that can just really shake you and impress you and what have you. But when it's all said and done, you see, if we don't get to the person of Jesus, we're failing in our whole mission. Because what I've learned over the years is this, it's doctrine doesn't change a person's life. It's the person of Jesus that does. And what I really want to do is introduce people to this Jesus that I love, to this man who's touched my life and changed my life. So we don't get all shook up just about, well, do you believe in rapture, pre-rapture, mid-tribulation, mid mid post-tribulation, pre-tribulation? I don't really know. Like I always say, I was taught by my old spiritual father when he was always asked, do you believe in the rapture of the church? Do you believe in 
pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. And he'd always say, I believe in pan-trib. And they'd say, what do you mean pan-trib? He said, well, I figure if you live right, it'll all pan out. In other words, some things, we don't have all the light that we could have on them. I don't have all the answers for all the Bible questions. And I can't, I, so I'm not going to let one thing. I've been wrong before, and I'll be wrong again. And so will you, sweetheart. So don't look at me too clever on it. <laughs> but anyhow, some seem especially gifted in sowing dissension and misunderstanding, normally because of a pet doctrine which has infatuated them. They never seem to be satisfied until they've divided men and under the guise of contending for the faith, once delivered to the saints, they go about making proselytes and they wound the body of Christ afresh. And Jesus prayed that his church might be one. In America, we have entire, uh, uh, what's the word? Well, franchised radio stations across all of America. You know, in America, every city has Christian radio stations. But there, I won't, again, I won't name names, but let me just say, I always remember uh, what one of the things that touched my life many years ago is there's this one organization that it's their life's calling is to share where every other ministry is wrong. I mean, that's their whole, their whole ministry is based upon, quote unquote, uncovering things that may not be as correct as they think they should be. And these are theologians and these are and they've got such a following. But I mean, all they ever do is preach about other ministries. And it's like you, you think to yourself, the, you've heard like the very first course when I taught on the grace thing. The Bible, we're called to preach the gospel. We're called the pulpits or to share the good news of Jesus Christ. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect ministries. So if you look hard enough, my friend, you're going to find something wrong with anybody. You know what I mean? So to say that there's something wrong with that outfit, duh. You know, but it's the old story. You know, when you point your finger, there's three pointed back at you. But I, when I, before I was in ministry and I worked for this organization and, and an oil field company in the States, and I was, every morning I'd have to be on this rig and drive out on these oil fields really early, like 5 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. And every morning in, in America, you know, where you're at, there's these radio programs come on for their 15-minute slots or 30-minute slots and what have you. But every morning, Kenneth Copeland would come on, then Kenneth Hagin, and then this other organization and, you know, people, when you, when you do these, I, I used to do a lot of radio over there. So you go into a studio and you, you put five, you normally put one week's in and one day. You do five sessions because they're 15-minute teaching slots. So you have a studio, you're there just for half a day, and maybe you do two weeks at a time. So these people, when they record these things, they record, they're pre-recorded, you know, and they don't know they're going to go out a certain week. But, I mean, anyhow, for five days, this guy was, uh, Kenneth Copeland, I can say who he was because he was a good guy. <laughs> He was talking about how God was using so many different ministries across America and the world. And this is way back 25 years ago. And he began to talk for the last two days about this ministry in Southern California that works with young people and puts on Christian concerts and was talking about how these are some of the best people. They're doing some of the most powerful works for the Lord, bringing young people to Jesus by the way they communicate through music and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And... But every single day when he got done with his broadcast, this next program was these people in Southern California. And the whole week was these people saying that Kenneth Copeland was of the devil. Kenneth Hagin was a heretic. Uh, Charles Capps is a false prophet. Oral Roberts was a, was a devil in disguise. And I mean, over and over again, and I would every morning, I never forget that, I would have the radio on, I listened to this guy, and this guy was just shouting the praises of this ministry. 
boom, that, and this guy starts, and this guy is saying that these guys are the devil. And I never will forget all those years back then. You know, I, I don't know much now, but I didn't know anything then. I remember they're driving that truck, and I went, I remember just, I, had, I said, that's the difference. I want to be one of these. I don't know, something about me just said, I don't want to align myself with these people. All they're doing is talking bad about people. And I didn't, you know, I'm, a, I'm an ex-drug addict, an ex-dude you know, caught up in violent crime and stuff like this. But there was something about this that said, that's crazy. That's insane. I mean, why would you just tear people down constantly? But there's ministries all over the world whose sole cause is to just try to uncover the problems in somebody else's ministry. And to me, that's, I just shudder when I think about what's really going to happen when they face Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because they've not, they've, healing is not what they've been bringing, trust me. And they've thrown so much harm and so much pain and so much wound just because, you know, they don't understand that somebody else in the body of Christ may have an extra, another area of expertise. Do you know what I mean? And you, and you don't have that. Anyhow, whatever. Sorry, I'm on my hobby horse tonight. I apologize. They're never satisfied until the divided men and under the guise of contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. They go about making proselytes and they wound the body of Christ afresh. But blessed are the peacemakers. Point D, Jesus prayed that his church might be one. John 17, 21. He said that they all might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Point E, there is a false peace and there is a false unity that's based on compromise with the world. Christ came to break up that peace. That's where he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. But peace can never be purchased by sacrificing truth or by compromising with the world. Did you hear me say that? I'm going to say it again. Peace can never, you will never, if you actually want the Bible peace, the Bible says is ours. Jesus said, the peace that I give is not like the peace that the world gives. Please hear me. You will not have real spiritual peace as long as you compromise with the world, you can't have it. Peace can never come by sacrificing truth or by compromising with the world. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Point F, pray, and this is true, we need to pray that this competitive spirit that's in the body of Christ be overcome and be broken. That all the petty jealousies between the between denominations and the rivalries among church workers will vanish as we simply begin to kneel at the foot of the cross. If we do so, then we may be truly called the sons of God. But I have a, you know, the sad thing is that's probably not going to happen. It's just what we witnessed a week ago. You know what? I, in other courses when I used to teach on war, historically speaking, I know this is so simple, but really hear me. And this is probably what's going to happen. Um, some way, shape, or form in the body of Christ. History proves there's only one thing that's ever brought true unity. And you know what that is? The revelation of a common enemy. Say it. The revelation of a common enemy. In other words, again, trust me, if you got a church on each street corner and a bomb goes off like went off last Thursday, you know what? You won't care if they speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues. If a missile falls in this city from another country, Nobody will care about what race you are. You hear what I'm trying to say? When the overwhelming evidence of a common enemy comes into view, all distinctions and all reasons for disunity vanish. If somehow, some way, you see, we would ever understand that we do not war against flesh and blood, 
if we would ever learn how to agree to disagree about some things and just work together with what we agree about, we could see miracles every day of our life. Because again, we're always gonna have areas of misunderstanding. But the point is we have one enemy and his name is Satan. And from that one enemy comes lies, deceptions, distortions. And that's what we need a common revelation of. And to me, it's so simple. I'm, I hope that didn't come off like I'm saying I'm something, but I'm just saying, I just, when you work with people like I sit at tables like this or sit in meetings like this, like I say at times with different ministerial heads of different organizations, what have you. And some of the things they argue over. I mean, when you sit, when I sit in, sometimes some churches have me come and sit on them. A while back, I was at a meeting. There was 25 people, the staff, and they had me come in as a troubleshooter because of a situation that was going on. But the underlying issue, and I, you know, you've heard about these things before, but it is so, it's so goofy. And you, they're, they're actually, the church is splitting over the, truly over the color of the carpet. The church splits over the color of the carpet. And then they wonder why there's no power in their church, why people aren't getting saved. You have, you know, and this is why we make this joke about, you know, churches, a church board, they have deacons, you know, and elders and stuff like this. But in the States, we have this statement that, yeah, I went to that church. It's a deacon-possessed church. <laughs> There's many deacon-possessed churches. In other words, where everybody's trying to make decisions based upon humanism and all their thought. Nobody's actually coming to the things of the Spirit. But to split a church over the color of the carpet, that just blows my mind. These are deeply mature people. <laughs> Number eight, the final one. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now Jesus looks straight into their face and remember this is the time of the Roman occupation. People can be murdered at will. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly, exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And I tell you, in this land right here, honestly, you know, like this bill that they just passed, you know, about the incitement to religious hatred that has so much opportunity in it to, uh, to mess up all the opportunity for Christian media and all the things that, you know, I'm sure most of you are aware a little bit about what it's about, how if we were to say Jesus is the only way and that, you know, Islam produces a lot of idiots, <laughs> They're not all idiots, but it, there's some fundamentalist problem. You know, whatever, that you could actually go to jail if that is actually interpreted like they could interpret. They say it won't, but you have to understand. The Bible says beware of the subtlety of the devil. See, he wants a foot in the door. And then that's when room for interpretation can all be altered later and all the problems can come up. But you do know, I hope you really, 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 really do know that in the last days, everything that there is is going to come down to one question. They're going to call us. They're going to tell us. The whole world is going to accuse us of being exclusive, exclusivists because when it's all said and done, we are going to say there's one way. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we will be called short-sighted. We will be called, again, exclusive. We will be called all manner of things because of this false ecumenical spirit that's coming into the world where everybody but everybody's supposed to get along together. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That's the whole one world government thing and what have you. So at some point, I, I do worry because 
today you don't have that many people that can even handle the pressure of a, of a hangnail, much less the pressure of a, of a governmental body that looks you straight in the face and say either change or go to jail, like a lot of other nations have in their midst already. But if you don't think those things aren't coming here, you're crazy because they're coming here. So this is why so desperately, even like this silly little grace course that I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trusting God. The Bible says righteousness and peace shall be the stability of your times. There has to be something deep-seated in your spirit. And, there, and, and it's available to whosoever will. Because, you know, again, as you hear me say and when I teach intercessors all the time, you cannot pray again. You cannot pray against what God says is going to come to pass. And God's word says gross darkness is going to cover this earth. But the glory of the Lord will be seen upon us. Hallelujah. But gross darkness is coming. You can't stop gross darkness from coming because it's coming because he said it's coming. So it's going to get worse and worse. Jesus said, remember, the last days are going to be just like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, duh, walk two blocks over here and you see Sodom and Gomorrah. He said the last, and you know, the, you know, the homosexual lobby is the loudest lobby in all governmental offices. Did you know that? It's funny because, you know, in the Bible, I, I, my, one of my major teachers was a guy named Bob Yanning. He's probably one of the most, he's, he's got 20 years in Greek, 20 years of Hebrew study. He said he was asked one day, did Jesus ever meet a homosexual? And he went, wow. He said, I never thought about it. But because he's such a Greek expert, he went through this. And, of course, the spirits that Jesus dealt with most that are listed in the Bible, you know, they're spirits of infirmity, but it's an unclean spirit. The Greek word is porneo. It's where you get the word pornography. But the funny thing about it, and I don't want to go into a whole teaching on that, but the issue is unclean spirits, when Jesus dealt with unclean spirits in the Bible, listen to this phrase. They're the spirits that protested the loudest when they came out. But they're the spirits that protest the loudest. I said they're the spirits that protest the loudest. Ask yourself who protests the loudest. They're unclean spirits. See, we're not talking about the people, but they don't understand. Yeah, God loves homosexuals. I deal with I love. I know homosexuals. I, there's homosexuals I work with. I love them, but God knows I'm trying to get them to see the truth. The world loves its own and is not inclined to go out of its way in blessing those who seek to live the principles that Christ set forth. You do know that, don't you? Another place says, you know, don't think it's strange that the whole world hates you. Right? You're supposed to live in contrast. You hear me? If you do fit in with everybody else, something is wrong with you, sweetheart. Do you hear me? Of course you're going to be different. You're the salt. You're the light. You're different. You're peculiar people. Look at your neighbor and say, you're really peculiar. It says the world loves its own. And the world is not inclined to go out of its way in blessing those who seek to live the principles that Christ set forth. Living by Christ's standards will not make you popular with the world. This is on my own notes. When Jesus was merciful to the sinner woman, the Pharisees resented it strongly. When he said not to hunger after meat that perishes, but rather hunger for that which endures unto everlasting life, they didn't understand and they all left him. Luke 6, 26, of course, says, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And, of course, 2 Timothy 3, 12 is the one that says, Yea, 
and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, you know, it's the old joke, but it's true. If you don't have any persecution in your life, you may have to ask yourself, how godly do I live? <laughs> trying to wave at me, get my attention. <laughs> but think about it. Woe unto, the, woe, woe unto you, it says. I mean, it's, it's, it's nasty when he has to say that. But then he says, all those who live godly, all those who live, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I know there's a few of us doing something right. You know what I mean? Point A, holiness, listen to this statement, is not welcomed by the world, but religion the world will accept. You hear me? And religion is very different from Christianity. Hallelujah. The person who preaches the truth of Christ will be mocked. He is told that you must understand moral standards have changed. I should have brought you this article in my that Dr. Cole wrote years ago on relativism, how there's no absolutes. I'm sure you've surely heard messages about it, but that's the whole thing that started some, uh, I forget, some 20-some years ago. They began to bring the message of relativism. Everything is relative. And because of the day we live in today, we have to look at things relatively. That's why it's all bogus, even the stuff that, that, that sent out all these arguments about why we need to be okay about this, because times have changed. You know, we, we need to see things relatively now. And see, they've taken away all the absolutes. The Bible is a book of absolutes. I want to say something. God is absolutely truth. He's absolutely truth. I can't change that. You can't change that. And he means it. And he loves us desperately. But don't ever doubt for a moment that there will not be judgment on the wicked because it's, it's, it'll be there. And I don't care how dark it gets. I refuse to be part of it, and so should you. That's all, I'm, all we're saying here. The person who preaches the truth of Christ will be mocked. He's told the standards have changed. They're called puritanical, old fogies, completely out of step with the times. Next page. As soon as a person sets out to obey the commandments of Christ, as soon as a person steps out, sets out to obey the commandments of Christ, he will be tempted by the question of whether or not he's aiming too high to be practical. If he's to help men, should he not be like them? No, if one is to help man, you have to be unlike him. Man should not be offered something to make him a little more respectable, but rather to make him like Jesus. Others may laugh and mock, but when the day of trouble comes, they will go to the one who has reality, not to a worldly moralist. We are to be different. Hallelujah. And you know, we're all faced with this. When I first got saved, like I said, I was working out in the oil fields. And these guys, some of them knew me from my past and what have you, but I got saved. I mean, I got saved. I wasn't perfect. I still slipped up and cussed at times. And I'm, I know all you people are perfect, but, you know, I would, in those early days, I'd still, I'd get under pressure. And I'd, because my mind had been taught that way for so long, you know. But in, when you're out on, on location on an oil, in an, on an oil well, there's what's called a doghouse. <laughs> doghouse is where, like, the crew, when you shift, and you're on 12-hour shifts, there's like 15 or 20 of you. And some of these guys, these are, these are tough boys. I mean, these are some tough, tough boys out there. You know, gangsters is the only kind of work they can get and what have you. Well, I got saved, and they, man, when I, I got saved, and when I came to work, I mean, these guys, hey, Anderson, you got religion, you know, and I mean the jokes, the laughter, and even though some of them knew my past, they knew I had this, quote, unquote, ugly reputation, and, but still, you know, they're, but, eh, you know, and they laughed and mocked, and I always remember, I looked at these guys one day, and suddenly I just had it, and I said, you know what? I turned this guy named, well, I don't know. 
I turned to this guy and I said, listen, I said, yeah, I said, I am saved. I said, I don't understand this stuff. I said, I don't know much about it, but I said something, I always remember just saying, but something in me, I know this stuff is right. This is the truth. And I said, just, I said, just watch me. All I can say is just watch me. I said, I know I'll mess up. I'll make mistakes. I'll cuss probably whatever. I'll still mess up. But I said, I'm going, I, I said, I'm, I'm, but I've made my decision. I'm going this way. And I said, so just don't watch my mistakes, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And yeah. And they laugh and mock and boy, I mean, weeks went by and they're just laughing. But you know what I'm going to say? It's just this thing. But little by little, slowly but surely, they saw the change in me. And suddenly, they'd always by themselves, because they didn't want to be seen with anybody else, they'd catch me alone. <laughs> and they'd say, come here. Is, is this stuff real? And I go, yeah, it is. You know, and, and what I'm trying to say is pretty soon it was my phone that began to ring. Ring, ring. You know, my phone began to ring. <laughs> but I'm just saying it's... And it's true, but there, there comes, there'll come a point in anybody's life, no matter how, even, I know people have been in the Lord for a long time, but they still haven't actually made that decision. At some point, you're faced with the decision. It's this principle where Jesus said, if you don't confess me before men, neither will I confess you before my Father. There comes a time when you look your worst adversary in the face and say, with all of my stupidity, with all of my mistakes, I may still smoke, I may do this, I may do that. But I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I'm going to live for him. I'm not perfect yet, but I'm going this direction. And I want to tell you, the moment you begin to confess that, strength comes into your spirit. I'm telling you, because it's like you break something because the you know, hell works through the shame and intimidation. And oh, I don't want to look stupid in front of somebody. But the moment you just stand up and you just say, "Yep, yeah, that's right. I am a Christian. Well, what is it all about? I don't know, but I am one. You know, you don't have to try to explain it all and be Billy Graham. It just, it's just God begins to honor you when out of your mouth comes that declaration that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm not perfect yet. I know I'll make mistakes and what have you, but don't judge this Christianity by me because I know this stuff is real. Anyhow, if you'll, if you'll just follow that simple bit of advice, I'll tell you, it'll be, it'll, you'll see things happen. Men should not be offered something to make them a little more respectable, but rather to make them like Jesus. Others may laugh and mock, but when the day of trouble comes, they will go to the one who has reality, not to a worldly moralist. We are to be different. Matthew 5, 13, as he finishes this chapter here in Matthew 5, we won't go through it all. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Of course, you know, salt is a preservative. The disciples understood this as a fisherman. Without its savor, it was worthless to them. We are the preserving factor of the world. This is what the world doesn't understand. They want us out of here. The problem is we are going to be taken out of here at some point. And when we are, well, I'll just, let me just read. We are the preserving factor in this world. The world doesn't realize what it owes the believer that it despises. Were it not for us, the world would have strangled in its own decay. Some 1,650 years after Adam, the antediluvian world, that's the world before the flood, had to be destroyed. About 450 years after that, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. After another 450 years, the land of Canaan lost its inhabitants because of the extreme wickedness of the people. But think about it. Now for nearly 2,000 years, time has gone by and God has permitted nations to go their way, hasn't he? 2,000 years. As poor as our showing as Christians have been, we have been the salt which has preserved the world from the judgment it deserves. 
However, once the, the church, which is the salt of the earth, is taken out, you will see the judgments of God fall in apocalyptic intensity. And I mean, that is the truth. Matthew 5, 14 and 16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, bushel but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I'm just going to read a paragraph that I have down here. We often hear that there are more good Muslims. Listen, this is on my notes, not yours. We often hear that there are more good Muslims in Muslim countries than Christians in Christian countries. There's a reason for this. Muhammad set before his people a religion calculated to, to commend itself to them that hurt him. Islam requires no fundamental change in character. There's no transformation of character required because it's enough for just outward observances of all the religious ceremonies and to fight the enemies of Islam. That done, it was all this actually requested. When you look at the heart of it, read one of my close friends, Dr. Jim Garlow. You remember some of you seen a Christian's response to Islam. The book's been taken all over the world now. But Christ said, the difference between this is, but Christ said that you have to be born again. He required self-denial and an inward change, not just an outward obedience. Therefore, Christianity finds much fewer genuine adherents than Islam. In other words, it's much easier to get into something that's a club that's observed only by outward obediences. But this stuff called Christianity demands an inward change. It demands a lot more than anything else. It's not a light thing. It's a large thing. The medieval church lost its power when it began to baptize people in masses without a change of heart. Today, as the lukewarm church continues to lower its standards to accommodate the world in general, and I can't preach in this because I take it all night, it does lose its power. To sacrifice God's standards for numbers is a grave error. We must be salt. We must be different. Amen. Father, we thank you for this much in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.